Hi, y'all. This is Misty from the Garden Path Podcast. Going to be a little bit different this week. I'm actually in my closet recording this instead of outside chatting to you guys. I am going to re-air an episode that is from my other podcast, the Orange Blaze Florida Trail Podcast. I covered a few people this year that do some great work in Florida botanically, and I wanted to re-air them here. It's kind of like I, how I re-aired the Botanical Hikers last fall for the podcast. So if you happen to listen to both podcasts, I apologize for the duplication, but I don't think there's a lot of crossover. And I do think this episode will be of interest to my listeners here on the Garden Path podcast. I'm going to re-air it exactly how it went out on the other podcast. So you'll hear that introduction and all that information. And I have a couple other episodes like this I'm going to intersperse in August and September. So just want to give you a heads up on that. Uh, But here it goes. You're listening to Orange Blaze, a Florida Trail podcast. It's so, it's such a special area. And yeah, I started learning about it um, through going to talks at the Native Plant Society and then researching and reading more about it. And I was just so shocked to realize that I was grew up and was living in such a special biodiverse area. That was Lily Anderson Messick botanist, horticulturist, and native plant advocate. And I'm Misty Ridley-Little, Florida Trail thru-hiker and host of the podcast. I can't pinpoint exactly when I began following Lily's Instagram feed, but over the last few years, her feed has been filled with the botanical wonders of Florida's Big Bend region, which encompasses the area of St. Mark's National Wildlife Refuge and Apalachicola National Forest, as well as many other areas. Her attention to detail between botanical species, as well as the knowledge she imparted in her Instagram stories, drew me in, as I'm also someone interested in native plants of various ecoregions. One aspect of the Florida Trail that I try to hone in on for people coming to the trail is to recognize the incredible biodiversity within the state, to look beyond the wet and dry, and see how the landscapes work together. Many people focus in on places like Everglades National Park, which is a gorgeous national wonder in itself, but forget that other regions of Florida, including the oft-forgotten area of North Florida, hold incredible amounts of plant diversity. There is always something to learn from what Lily shares, and this episode was no different. I know that even Floridians will learn something new in this episode. Oh, and a side note, as I was editing, I said I lived in Florida for six years. It was actually eight years, with six years being in South Florida. It kind of bugged me that I made that slip, so I wanted to mention that here. All right, on to the episode. So maybe if you wanted to start, like introduce yourself. I mean, I don't know if you're from Florida originally, or I think you lived in Colorado a little bit. So maybe kind of just how you got into plants and nature and and where you where you evolved from. Yeah, I am actually from Tallahassee. I was born here, and um, yeah, I lived. I did live in Colorado and Montana for a little while, both of those places, but ended up back in Tallahassee. And um, so I got into plants, pro- most likely because my dad, he al- was always pointing out plants to me. His dad was um, the head of the Department of Citrus and Exotics in Florida, like back in the maybe like 30s and 40s. Oh, wow. <laughs> and um, m- m- his mom, my grandmother, uh, she was a plant enthusiast and had a great big greenhouse in her backyard and all kinds of fruit trees. And she was very active in her orchid society locally. And so I think my dad grew up really seeing plants and noticing plants and appreciating them. And he provided that for me. I think most people 
don't really see plants. It's kind of like a background for animals. Yes. (laughs) And um, one of my goals in like having that, the Instagram account that I have and Facebook and everything is just helping people to notice and observe and appreciate because if we don't, if people don't know and appreciate and love the plants in our habit in our eco regions of Florida, then they won't, you know, make an effort to conserve them. And that's critically important to me and life in general. Yes. (laughs) So, um, I'm sorry, go ahead. Uh, So I, I, I was thinking about it today and I, I first got, I first purchased a bunch of bulbs. I became obsessed with bulbs in like high school. (laughs) And then in college, um, like right outside, out of high school, I started growing veggies, like vegetable plants. And um, my mom, um, my mom was diagnosed with early onset Alzheimer's when I was in middle school. So my dad and I, became very close taking care of her and gardening and sitting out with outside with my plants was an extremely cathartic um, environment for me and was something that really was healing um, and that I found solace in. And I, you know, ended up working at a native plant nursery and uh, I, was obsessed with veggies and organic farming. And from that, I started becoming interested in native plants, mostly because I was interested in foraging for native plants. Mm-hmm. And then I kind of spread I spread out from there. And I'm seeing that path. I've seen a lot of young people taking that path where they're interested in vegetable gardening and they become interested in foraging and then they start appreciating native plants because they're out looking at them. Right. So did you end up in college going for like a botany or horticulture degree or or how did that happen? <laughs> yes. Yeah, so I have no official degree in any sort of biological field. I went to school for international relations with a, <laughs> on political science. And um I dropped out of school because my mom was sick and she was dying and it was a really difficult time for me. And it just wasn't a priority. And I, 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 the more I matured, I think the less I was interested in um, international relations and more interested in, you know, life around me. Right. (laughs) Yeah. That definitely seems like a big deviation from, you know, from, you know, enjoying your plants as a teen. And I think so many of us probably go to college doing what we think we should do, not what we really want to do. So. Yeah. And I I also think, you know, I just didn't really know what my interests were yet. Um, But I found that being around plants and working with plants was really satisfying and cathartic for me. Like, again, I was going through a difficult time and it was really healing for me. And so um, I found that was really important. Um, Yeah. So so since you were self-taught, basically, what kind of resources did you have to to learn? I mean, you probably had mentors in in real life, but was there any 
I mean, this is probably early days of the online world, which is, you know, rapidly different than it was even 10 years ago. So, yeah, yeah, how did all that happen, too? Well, so I was working at a native plant nursery and I became manager of the nursery and I joined the local chapter of the Florida Native Plant Society. And I started going to their meetings and I started um, meeting more people and I went on field trips that the Native Plant Society took, you know, people out on. And that's how I met, you know, a diverse group of plant enthusiasts and botanists. And a lot of those people became mentors for me. And um, I would go out, my friends, Eleanor Dietrich and Floyd Griffith, I would go out on Sundays with them. Um, I would have to find Another sideline to my life story is that my dad ended up getting sick with dementia after my mom passed away. Oh, no. <laughs> so so by the time I started really becoming interested and obsessed with native plants, my dad had dementia and had moved in with me, and I was caregiving for him. I've been a caregiver for most of my life. and mm. And so going out in nature with Floyd and Eleanor on Sundays, we would go out to the national forest or other areas around, um, was just such a wonderful experience for me. And just, it was like the beacon of light in my life at the time. And that's how I started learning plants was from other people. Right. Now, did it seem like difficult to, um, learn about, you know, the actual plant parts and, you know, detailed taxonomy and, and all of that? Or what did you do to, like, learn all of that? Yeah, well, I read books. Um, and the more I needed to know in order to identify plants, uh, to separate species, and it, it's called keying out a plant, using a dichotomous key to um, identify which what genus and what species a plant is, the more I had to learn all of those terms. And um, so I just read, I think, I think a lot of people in my generation are, you know, self-taught and um, learn because they have a passion and interest in something. And um, so I did. And I just, I did want to mention a book that is really, has been really useful to me and and that it's called Botany in a Day, the patterns oh, of, yeah. mm-hmm. of plant identification. And that was a great book to give me the basis that I didn't have of plant uh, biological knowledge in order to like understand the plants more. Right. So what places were you going around to hike in Tallahassee? I mean, you're going to the, I'm sure the local national forest, but what other cool places are around Tallahassee that people might be unaware of? Yeah, well, we have the Munson Sandhills, which are really like 10 minute, 10 minute drive from my house. And um, I'm a, I am not a hiker, but I am a biker. I love biking. And I've done uh, several bikepacking trips with my partner where we are camping and biking off trail and um, or on trail off road. And mm-hmm. uh, so th- there are bike trails just south of town. And there are, there's a St. Mark's National Wildlife Refuge, just maybe about 25 minutes from my house in Tallahassee. And that, the, both of those places are just 
you know, filled with diverse plant and animal life. Um, so I guess more broadly speaking, as so as you're you're learning all the plants, are you le- you're learning about the ecosystems of the region? Were you aware, like growing up, just like what kind of special habitats were around in Florida? I mean, a lot of people probably realize you know, a lot of things from South Florida that are, you know, special like the Everglades and Big Cypress. Yeah. But um, I think people might tend to, you know, just look at North Florida as being, you know, South Georgia and and yeah. turn their nose up to that. So um, when did it kind of become apparent to you? I've, probably when you were doing these, your, your hikes with the Florida Native Plant Society, but just yeah. how important some of these ecosystems and landscapes were. Um, and I guess maybe discuss a little bit about the, the ecosystems of North Florida. Yeah. It's so it's such a special area. And yeah, I started learning about it um through going to talks at the Native Plant Society and then researching and reading more about it. And I was just so shocked to realize that I was grew up and li- was living in such a special biodiverse area. And I I never learned any of those things in school. We learned about European history. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) um, And, you know, like some, probably some, you know, stuff about the history of America. But I I think there was a real lack of um, local information. Because when, when I learned that, for instance, there's a geological feature that bisects east to west Tallahassee this Mm -hmm. city I live in and it's and if you it's right around where the capitol building is and south of it south of this feature it's called the Cody Scarp um the the um habitat becomes very flat sandy with some limestone outcroppings but mostly pine And then north of that feature are the red hills, which are more clayey, um, rolling hills with pine also, but also hardwood hammocks and very different topography. And when I found out that that's because the Cody Scarp is the prehistoric coastline, I was just like blown away that the prehistoric, this prehistoric coastline, I was traveling back and forth across it my whole life. And I never, <laughs> never knew it was there. And I had never really even noticed that there were these different, vastly different environments, north and south of town. And it's one of the reasons why um, the south side of town is has always been um, less economically, um, you know. Yeah. Yeah, it's the north side of town with the clay soils are where all of the plantations were with the rich soils that were good for growing. And so Mm -hmm. all of that land was bought up by rich plantation owners and used to grow. Um, And so the south side of, of Florida was always, you know, much poor and or sorry south side of Tallahassee was always much poorer and um that was really interesting to me I read a book that is still one of my favorite books called uh, the other Florida and it it's about Tallahassee and the panhandle in general and it was written in 64 by a woman who was a 
New York journalist and her husband got a job at FSU and she moved here like right after desegregation. And she felt was an, kind of a naturalist and she fell in love with a manhandle and she wrote this book and has all had all of these chapters on different topics like, you know, um, the uh, Toria State Park area and the um, Sorry, my dog is <laughs> distracting me here. Um, and the different um, different regions and different, you know, um, histories of the area, like the uh, turpentine camps that were still active when she was living here. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so I learned about those things. And then I started learning that this was the panhandle is one of the most biodiverse regions in America. Uh, and it's because we have all of these different um, distinct habitats that meet in one relatively small area. And those different habitats have very different plant and animal species. And the regions in between the habitats that are varying from one habitat to another are all, they're called ecotones. Mm -hmm. And those, those little regions are well known all over the world for being areas of um, ex ex special biodiversity. So with the, all of the ecotones in the area, because these habitats are meeting up and then very different habitats in general, um, the Panhandle is just an extremely biodiverse area and really special and unique. Right. I, I definitely regret that one thing with my short six years in Florida that we did not get to the Panhandle as much. You know, we were kind of stuck down in Miami and Fort Lauderdale so much that, you know, it's it's, it's a lot longer of a drive than you expect to get up that way. Yeah. And uh, so we spent a little bit of time in Apalachicola once and uh, did a few things, but not nearly as much time. And then when we, of course, when we hiked through on the Florida trail, we were just amazed at just how cool North Florida was. And yeah. it's something that I would love to get back to. And it's actually, <laughs> I, I'm in Houston now. And it's kind of funny because, you know, I can drive 10 hours and get to Florida pretty fast, or I can go 10 hours and still be in Texas <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> the West Texas. So, it's like, well, we we go to West Texas or I can go to Florida either way. Um, so diversity in West Texas, actually. But yes. yeah. But yeah, I know it's I look back and think, man, I can't believe, you know, I, I kind of regret that my parents didn't teach me more about our environment and take me out to explore and see where I was living, you know, or the history of the Native Americans in the area, um, which I really don't know that much about. But I, you know, have read quite a bit about it, but I, um, yeah, so the more I started seeing these vastly different ecosystems and the really cool plants and animals that were in them and, you know, actually using social media, um, it made me realize like, oh my gosh, other people in the country do not, do not have all of these plants. Um, <laughs> And, you know, I'm posting constantly year round cool stuff that is blooming or growing or um, in seed. 
And, you know, I just see the same, <laughs> the same type of plants that people are continuing to play, to post over and over again for, you know, the rest of the, the rest of the East coast, at least. I know there are different biodiverse regions in, in the U S like, um, in Southern California and such, but, uh, yeah, I just feel so lucky to be living here, and I try to get out as much as possible. Um, I have not explored the peninsula much at all because I was caring for my dad for so long. Um, and uh, I have explored some of the western panhandle, but I spend have spent a lot of time in the Apalachicola National Forest, which is about an hour drive from my house. And... Victoria State Park, which is about an hour drive. Uh, and north of Toria, there's Chattahoochee, which has um, these incredibly rare and weird limestone glades that have super rare plants on them as well and are real unique. So, yeah, I just feel incredibly lucky to be living in this area. Yeah, you could drive just about an hour each direction and hit somewhere really cool to explore. Yeah, the Suwannee River is just to the east. Yeah. That's a lot of fun. All the springs along the Suwannee and, you know, the various plants and animals that are in that area as well. I do, you mentioned the Torreya State Park. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that because I don't know if a lot of people understand the significance of that state park and what, you know, what the plant species there that is so important um and you know what you know hurricane michael did to that state park and uh maybe yeah maybe actually you might have an update on like how how that is all recovering a little bit too yeah so i recently have got i got a job with the florida native plant society which i'm so excited about because you know what a dream um and i am working on the terea keepers project uh and that is a project that is um, we are mapping, monitoring uh, toria trees and existing trees, and we're working with landowners, private landowners in the area who might have trees on their property or who know they have trees on their property so we can monitor them as well. And then we're also planting toria out there. And I'll tell a little bit about I'll tell you a little bit about the park before I go into the tree, the plant nerdiness. Um, but so that book, The Other Florida by Gloria Jehoda, she has a section on it about um, the Garden of Eden right here in Florida. So I guess the Southern Baptist in the region, um, there the Toria tree which is very rare and really only occurs along the Apalachicola River. Um, <clears throat> it's common, one of the common names is gopher wood. And apparently in the Bible, Noah's Ark was built from gopher wood, a tree called mm -hmm. gopher wood. Mm -hmm. And so they naturally assumed that the Garden of Eden was originally right here in Florida. And that's why... Victoria State Park has a trail called the Garden of Eden Trail, hmm. and, which is, you know, kind of interesting local facts. Yeah. Um, but so the Toria tree used to be uh, the state park is 
all is along the Apalachicola River. And the Apalachicola River basin is, is very diverse. There's a lot of plants that occur further north in the Carolinas that are disjunct and also occur down here. And then there are plants that probably used to occur, you know, in, in history at some point um, further up in the Carolinas, but went extinct up there and evolved and, and grew, continued to grow down here, like the Toria tree. And um, so one thing is I grew up saying Torea because that's what I learned, but apparently the correct pronunciation is Toria because uh, <laughs> tree is named after John Tory. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah, describe that plant. So, <clears throat> yeah, so the Toria tree was a plant. It's a conifer um, that is very, very rare. And it really, uh, like I said, only occurs along the Apalachicola River, but may have historically occurred further north. Um, and in right around the like 30s, 40s, people started noticing them dying. And then, and by the 1960s, virtually every mature tree um, was de were dead. Um, and the trees died back to the ground and they might re-sprout from the roots, but they could, would only get so big before dying back again. And it was a very common tree there actually. So the loss of the tree had, you know, all sorts of ripple effects on the environment. And um, several, you know, botanists started trying to figure out why it was disappearing. Why was it dying? And they eventually pinpointed um, a fungus, a fusarium fungus, that was killing it. And they thought if they took it out of the environment um, and grew it in other places, that it might persist in other places. But what they eventually found out is that the fungus is actually inherent to the tree. It's hmm. just, it only occurs with the tree, although it can spread to other, other plants. Um, and so the tree likely evolved with the fungus. And the fungus, the fusarium, really isn't the cause of the death of the trees. The, uh, the trees became stressed. and for some reason, they don't really, that, that has yet to be discovered, what changed in their environment that caused them to be stressed. And then just like when we're stressed, our immune system is compromised and we're more likely to get, you know, diseases or have issues. Um, so plants are similar in that they don't have the immune systems, but if they're stressed for various reasons, then they're more like more susceptible to pest and disease. And so the fusarium, when the trees are stressed, takes over and kills back the plant. Hmm. Yeah, so it's a weird and still yeah. a lot to learn about what is actually going on. And that's why it's important um, to keep these trees um, and keep the diversity of the genetic stock of them uh, available for um, future. Well, and I think it's just, it's a, it's a lesson for other species and habitats too, because you don't know, you could have 
something that's seemingly doing well, even if it's, you know, a small population, but it's pretty healthy. And then just one little thing can can turn it all on its head and and uh, and then you know you're having a loss of you know the like the bromeliad weevils down south um destroying yeah. some of those populations so it's just yeah. how tenuous of a balance it all is yeah like the the loss of the american chestnut um, yeah. in the east in the east was devastating and completely forever changed the environments and um i'm sure we lost a many species of plants and animals because of that change. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, and then one of the other things I wanted to mention too is, you know, talking about these different habitats and everything. Um, I, I also grew up, you know, going out in the woods in the Tallahassee area and seeing these kind of thickety overgrown woods that had a lot of vines that were difficult to navigate through. Uh, and I thought that that was like natural. And I was astonished to learn that that's not natural. That's not what the landscape would have looked like. Uh, and that uh, fire is actually critically important to the functioning of Florida ecosystems. And 80% of Florida historically would have burned um, naturally on a one to four year return rate. Not necessarily all at once, obviously, but yeah. <laughs> the, area, <laughs> the areas would be burned. And those fires would have been started by lightning, or it's also known that Native Americans used fire as well. Uh, and so learning about the fire suppression that started happening in the 40s when Smokey the Bear came around and said, wildfires are bad. And, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, it took them a while to figure out, well, I mean, lots of people already knew at that point, but we're not being heard. Um, that fire is essential to Florida landscapes. And many of our natural areas, like the National Forest, uh, was were forever changed because fire because of fire suppression, and um, I spend a lot of my time, you know, not on trails but on power lines and roadsides looking at plants because the mowing of roadsides and power lines mimics what fire does for the landscape, which is take out the hardwood trees and shrubby plants that would shade out our native grasses and. Um, and perennial wildflowers, etc. Right, so, right. so a lot of our rare native species, like the milkweeds that I'm so obsessed with, uh, are just persisting, barely hanging on in these small little populations along roadsides and power lines. So other than hanging out in roadsides and power lines, <laughs> I know you get out, you said you mentioned you get out to Apalachicola uh, quite a bit and St. Mark's somewhat. Um, can you talk a little bit about the ecosystems in each of those areas? I know, obviously, they're quite different because one's on the pretty much on the coast. But what kind of plants and uh, other species are you finding when you're out exploring? Or what do you? Is there anything you're out there particularly looking for? Or do you just often go and and just look to see what may be blooming? Yeah, I well, I do both, you know. But um, I have a particular obsession for 
um, carnivorous plants and also our native milkweeds, which Florida is extremely diverse in milkweed species. And we have 21 that are native to Florida and two of which are endemic to Florida. Only endemic means they only occur there um, in Florida. And so, um, yeah, I spend a lot of time going out specifically looking for plants and then also just wandering and hoping to find something. <laughs> but um, yeah, the St. Mark's National Wildlife Refuge, that is very diverse habitat and they've been burning there pretty well. Um, and so there are a lot of plants there. There are a lot of milkweeds there. Um, and the National Forest is known for its carnivorous plant diversity. Um, it's one of the most biodiverse places in the world for carnivorous plants. And people come from all over the world to see them in the National Forest. And um, so carnivorous plants are just really cool and a very charismatic, you know, um, type of plant. And there are many different genera that are not necessarily closely related in evol evolutionary terms, but have evolved similar um, ways of surviving in these very nutrient poor areas in which is getting nutrients from insects. So there are all sorts of different types of carnivorous plants and I love going out there to look at them. Yeah, that's definitely the highlight of Apalachicola for sure. And I, I think most people probably, if they're, you know, hiking on the trail, they're going to see pitcher plants and they may or may not know what's what that's about. Um, but there's other, you know, smaller, more diminutive carnivorous plants as well. Can you talk about those too? Yeah, so um, the there are actually pitcher plants that lie prostrate on the ground. Uh, and there are also other carnivorous plant species like sundews and uh, butterworts, which are pinkwiculus. And those both, the, all of these plants typically occur in the same areas because they're taking advantage of an area where there's less competition from other plant species because the soil is so nutrient poor. And they've adapted adapted and evolved to withstand that new lack of nutrients by eating insects, like I said before. But um, the sundews and the butterworts have a different method of catching insects. They have like sticky substances, sticky glands on their leaves, and the glands actually secrete digestive enzymes that allow them to, one, they're, they're sticky so the insects get caught on them, and then two, they're able to digest and absorb nutrients from the insects right on their leaves. Hmm. That's, I mean, I knew a little bit about that, but it's still just thinking about that is just really cool. And, and if you're walking along and you don't really know what you're looking at and just thinking that that plant is absorbing, you know, yeah. dead bugs. I, <laughs> I will never forget the first time I saw pitcher plants in the National Forest we have Saracenia flava, which is the yellow top pitcher plant. And it is a big plant. It can get, we have a subspecies called um, Saracenia flava var rugelii. And they can get, you know, three and a half feet tall, the big pitchers. And the pitchers are actually 
modified leaves that are modified to be these tubes and they have digestive enzymes down at the base of them and they catch insects in there and um, absorb the nutrients from them. But they're, uh, if, if any of your listeners haven't seen them before, they should really look them up because man, they are just this beautiful lime green color. Uh, and it's just unreal to see this whole stand of these tall, weird pitchers. They look like marching soldiers of some, <laughs> some otherworldly place. And man, it, it is just such an experience. And, you know, when I first saw them, I didn't even realize how special it was to see them because I didn't realize that they don't occur in a lot, m- most other areas. You know? Right, right. So other than, you know, carnivorous plants and milkweeds, what are some of your favorite plants uh, in North Florida or in some of these uh, regions uh, that we're discussing? Oh, uh, I mean, there are some really cool native trees that only occur along the Apalachicola River, uh, like the Florida yew, which is another really rare conifer, and the ash magnolia, which is um, a deciduous magnolia species that has massive leaves that can get to be like a foot and a half bit long. Wow. And the blooms are like the size of a, you know, a dinner plate. They're massive, mm. big, extremely fragrant blooms with that are white with a, a lilac purpley star in, at the center of the bloom. And so, yeah, I love all of those plants and I love to explore, you know, the rare plants on, on the limestone glades in the Chattahoochee area. Um, yeah, there are just so many things. I'd be hard to like list them all. <laughs> um, well, is there anything that someone hiking along the Florida trail in, you know, either St. Mark's or, or Apalachicola that would, other than pitcher plants that, you know, that they could keep an eye out for, that they would be able to recognize. Um, if I, you know, put a link in the show notes, they would be like, okay, I can keep an eye out for these. Um, obviously probably a, you know, January, February kind of bloom time or, or even uh, just a tree species. Is there anything that off the top of, he- off yeah. the top of your head you can think of? Well, January and February are, there's not a whole lot of things blooming. You'll see all kinds of cool plants not in bloom. Um, but there's not as many, and the ones that are can be difficult to find, uh, like the wiregrass gentian, which blooms in like in winter, and um, but is, I mean, even for me, very hard to spot, even though I know there's one like ten feet around me somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I was well, I was thinking about that, and I was like, it just depends so much on where you are at and what time of year. But what I would encourage your listeners to do if they're interested is um, there's an app called iNaturalist. Mm-hmm. Have you heard of it? Yes, I use it all the time. <laughs> yeah. So that's a great app for beginners learning what plants are, are around them, like even in their yard. And if you saw something cool on the Florida Trail, you could take a picture of it. And then later when you have Wi-Fi, you can upload it and the... Um, photo has location data so it it can tell you along with the um, photo algorithms the app have what is that plant is most likely to be so I think that's a great tool for beginners to start learning and exploring 
what they're seeing around them. Right. Yeah, I, I started using iNaturalist. I was a little resistant at first a few years ago, and mostly because I didn't want to deal with my phone so much. But then I realized that actually the power of the, the app is really on the desktop version. I feel like that's even the better way to use it. Um, so when I started using it as more of a desktop uh, method, I have fallen in love with it. And uh, definitely when I went to Florida back in January, I looked up the hooded pitcher plants at split oak forest. And I was like, I'm going to go find me some. (laughs) So that's, I use it as that method, which is uh, probably a good and a bad thing when you go into thinking about plant poaching and and wanting to not necessarily make all of your plant locations known, but um, it's definitely helpful if you want to learn a little bit. Yeah. That is one of the reasons why I was hesitant to start using iNaturalist um, because plant poaching is, is such a big deal in this area because carnivorous plants are highly coveted by obsessive collectors and the plants in this area in the western panhandle are so unique um, and so valuable like very valuable uh, that they get poached pretty fairly often and it's really depressing to see that and so when I um, take a photo and share it online. I make sure that I d- there's no location data in the photo, and I never. I the only information about the area that I am willing to give is the county that I was in. And um, when I use iNaturalist, I obscure the uh, location or make mm-hmm. it private so that people. And the other thing when you're using iNaturalist is even if you're identifying common species near the rare species, you still need to obscure that information because people could figure out where you were, you know. Just oh, like- yeah. Yeah. True. I hadn't thought about that, but that is very, <laughs> very wise to think yeah. about. Um, now, are you going out like all the, you seem like you're out quite frequently during the week. I know since you're working with the Florida Native Plant Society now that you're probably out a lot more frequently than you may have used to uh, been going. But I guess, yeah, how often are your expeditions to botanize? Yeah, I like to get out even just to go to St. Mark's um, or Munson Sandhills uh, for sunset or for an evening walk. Um and I, you just see so much stuff if you look around you. Uh, and then on the weekends um, or during the week when I'm working for the Native Plant Society, I um, explore, you know, I take a day and go to the National Forest or go to the Western Panhandle and um, camp out there or, um, you know, do a long day trip. So I try to get out as much as possible, and really it's for my own sanity because because it's so, it really, I mean, I'm sure hikers experience the same things. It's like it is just so good for your soul to be out in nature, and it takes me um, out of my own head and my own thoughts and worries and obsessions, and it allows me to, like, see that there's a whole world around me and that I'm just a little speck and a part of it all. And I, you know, don't have to feel so stressed. (laughs) (laughs) And it's just the pure awe of seeing the beauty 
and diversity of plants. And I, I really love to see genetic diversity within a population of plants. Like say there's a bunch of, you know, a certain type of milkweed, like clasping milkweed in an area. And you can see slight genetic diversity between individuals that are visible, like the coloration of the blooms or size of the plant or shape of the leaves. I love to see that. Um, and that diversity is what makes the species as a whole more adaptable to change in their environment. Right. Is there a particular habitat you prefer exploring in or you spend more of your time in than others? I mean, I, lo I love going to see pitcher plants in the seepage slopes of the western panhandle and the wet prairies and the national forest. Um, there's just something about those open, vast grasslands with a few pine trees that is just so, just so beautiful. And to see all of these weird, you know, carnivorous plants occurring in them and all sorts of also native terrestrial orchids occur in those areas. Um, and uh, also rare milkweeds occur in those areas. <laughs> So, you know, they're kind of like a, it's kind of ecstasy for me to go to, to a um, pitcher plant bog and just like sit and watch and listen and enjoy. Now, have you kind of evolved? I mean, I think you post sometimes about your, the insect species you see, but I guess have you, you're really interested in the plants. Have you started to try to learn about how it all connects with everything else, like with the insects, with uh, any ant? other animals and uh, species like that or I, I know it's it's really hard for me because you know I feel like I try to get involved and want to learn one thing and then I let everything else kind of go because I'm focused on this and then yeah. you slowly add in little pieces I don't know how it is for you yeah well when I start you know when you start photographing plants you start noticing even in the field, you might not notice a little crab spider on a bloom, but then you get back to your house and you look at photos and you're like, wow, mm -hmm. there is a spider there that is the exact same color of this bloom. And it makes me curious. And so then I look it up and learn more about them. And so I've learned more about insects. Insects are just so diverse. The diversity of insects is way over my head. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, just I, I'm not I've never delved too deeply into them, but I like to learn the ones that I see most often. So I know what they are. Um, and I see a lot of specific types of bees on milkweeds and um, specific types of beetles on milkweeds. And and I, of course, I love butterflies. Um, and yeah, I I do love insects as well and I at um the nursery I've worked I work at I've taught you know pollinator workshops about native species because so often when people talk about pollinators they assume you're talking about honeybees which are not native are right. European and our native pollinators pollinators are so critical and they are declining rapidly and um so, yeah, increasing habitat by planting native plants in your own yard, taking out invasive species, and replacing non-native species with um, native plants are, it's very, it's becoming critically important. Because, 
we are all able to survive only because we rely on these ecosystem services that are provided by functioning ecosystems like clean air and clean water and decomposition and all and um, buffers for extreme weather. Um, functioning ecosystems are critical to human survival and our ecosystems are failing all over the world. And we have, we as humans, have to recognize that our yards and gardens are not ours. You know, they're a part of a whole that needs to be functioning in order for our our survival as well. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I read a lot. And so I'm going to mention another book. Um, But the book Bringing Nature Home by Doug Challey just completely changed my life and, you know, really inspired me to spread the message of planting native plants and spreading the message of conserving and connecting um, preserved habitat for species. Because one of the big issues in America is what's called habitat fragmentation, which means we, we are having fewer and fewer natural areas and they are separated from each other. And so those species, the gene pool of both the plants and animals becomes more and more shallow, and that makes them more susceptible to um, to extinction. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think one of the things in that book, uh, Bringing Nature Home, that really struck me was how many species rely on oak trees. Yeah. Like, how many insects rely on them? And, and then I even thought about growing up, you know, my you know parents being worried about, you know, webworms and the trees and they would spray the trees. And now I'm like, don't spray the trees. <laughs> they're, yeah. they're just caterpillars. They're going to defoliate for, you know, a period of a month or so. And then they're going to turn into moths and it'll be great. <laughs> um, but yeah, that was a very eye-opening book. I agree with you. Oaks and pines are by far the most important members of the east, you know, the southeast ecosystems, and they support more wildlife than anything else. And those um, oaks in particular host 557 species of Lepidoptera, which are moths and butterflies. And people, you know, they dislike caterpillars. (laughs) They like butterflies, but they don't want to, they don't want the caterpillars eating their plants. But, um, those caterpillars are, the insects are just so critical for the entire food chain. They are what turn green things like leaves into protein in the form of themselves for the rest of the food chain. And bird species, which songbirds are in on a steep decline as well, uh, birds rely on caterpillars especially, um, especially. And so um, some of all of these facts are from Bringing Nature Home, but he states in there that, you know, on average per day, like a nesting pair of bluebirds brings about 500 caterpillars back to the nest to feed their babies. Yeah. And so if you you have a yard with crepe myrtles and boxwood and centipede lawn, um, you are not supporting any birds in, in your area. And mm-hmm. And you will not, even if you put a feeder out for them, baby birds, 96% of bird species in America, their babies can 
eat exclusively insects. They don't eat seeds or berries. And so planting some non-native berry producing tree or shrub does nothing for the survival of our bird species. Yeah. So I think all of that kind of brings me to the, my next question is what kind of um, environmental impacts is the panhandle facing? I know like a lot of the tension gets torn, tor- gets uh, talked about for the peninsula, um, you know, the upcoming potential uh, toll roads and, mm-hmm. you know, development is development as a big of an issue in the Tallahassee area as it is for the rest of the state. Or is there any, um, other big projects that are threatening any particular open spaces in that area? Um, I mean, none that come to, none in particular come to mind right away, but it is, development is just a continuing um, problem for all of Florida and all of the country and all of the world. Um, and the panhandle has been preserved from a lot of that. We're lucky to have a lot of state parks and national forests and um, national wildlife refuges. And um, those areas are preserved. Uh, but the habitat management has been an issue because even if you preserve those areas, if you aren't burning them at a regular interval, or if you don't burn for a long enough period and, it, and the habitat can no longer burn effectively, then you know, you're still losing all those species. Mm-hmm. And so, <clears throat> you know, habitat loss from development is by far the number one, you know, cause of, of loss of biodiversity and species. But it's also, you know, maintaining the habitat that we do have left and, and managing it well. You can't just leave it alone. You know, it has to be, it has to be managed. And that also means like protecting our roadsides, which are, you know, refuge for so many species that are just barely hanging on. And, you know, working with the Department of Transportation to mow at the right times and at the right intervals and not use herbicide, which has been an increasing problem in all of the southeast is herbicide use on on um, the roadsides. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it. It is. It can be very, very overwhelming and depressing, as I'm sure you know. Yes, definitely. But I think you know. I do think that sharing my love for these plants and my appreciation for them, and helping other people to see their beauty, is really important because, you know, if they don't know that those plants are there, they aren't willing to make the effort to vote to protect land. Right. Right. That has definitely been my experience is that you can't just necessarily talk to somebody and say such and such is very important. You have to, you have to make it important to them too. And then that's how it changes. And then it's, it's a lot, it's a lot harder to do it that way, (laughs) but it's when it's important to everybody else is when that gets protected. Um, so it's, it's definitely an uphill battle for sure. And these unique environments are, you know, money making places, you know, there are, they draw people from all over the world to see both our flora and fauna because we have such great biodiversity and birds and butterflies and uh, plants as well. 
So people, you know, preserving these could these areas could be, you know, beneficial for the state of Florida as well. Right. Now, you mentioned you hadn't had a chance to really explore the peninsula or western uh, panhandle, but is there any anywhere in particular you would like to visit, you know, in the next upcoming years or uh, or maybe even that's on your highlight list for, I don't know, when this pandemic yeah. ends? <laughs> well, I'd love to go to the Lake Wales Ridge in central oh, yeah. South Florida. Um, that's a very unique biological with extreme biological diversity because it's a former island and so um, all of these plants evolved uh, by themselves for such a long period of time they developed really unique species there and I'd love to see those and there's still two species of native milkweeds I've never seen because they only occur in the peninsula and um, that's the Curtis's milkweed, uh, Asclepius curtisi and um, the Florida milkweed, Asclepias fei. So uh, hopefully, with, depends on this pandemic, you know, I I really wanted to see them this year, but that, I don't know if that's going to be able to happen. Yeah. I, yeah. I also would love to spend more time in the Everglades. I did a bike ride with my partner um, in the Fagahatchee Strand, and we had, I, I loved it down there. It just, it's so different. But, um, yeah, I'd love to learn more about those areas. Yeah, I was going to ask if you did any kind of swamp hiking, if you went to, you know, any of the Tai Tai Sloughs or, um, like, hiked in Bradwell Bay or anything like that. I have done not not all that much, no, because um, those areas aren't necessarily super biodiverse for, like, plants. Um, But... You know, I certainly have spent a good amount of time in, you know, in in some moccasin-rich swamps. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, if you ever do get to go back to South Florida, definitely Fakahatchee is, is yeah. a highlight. So. Yeah, I have some friends down there that will take me out to see all the cool stuff, and I can't wait, but pandemic. Yes. <laughs> Um, one of the things I wanted to mention, which is also a critical problem, you know, after development for Florida habitat is um, invasive plant species. Yes. And um, and in Central and South Florida, invasive, you know, animal species are also a real problem. But one of the, when I drove down to do that bike ride in the Fagahatchee Strand, I could not believe the amount of Kogan grass that was covering miles and miles of roadside down there. And um, Kogan grass is, I think, in my opinion, by far the most worrisome and threatening invasive species that we have. And I would love everyone who is hiking on a trail to learn what Kogan grass looks like so they can ID it and report it. Um, Because it is very scary. It, it grows so thickly in both full sun and full shade and wet soils and dry soils. And it covers the landscape and pushes out every other plant besides, besides the already established trees. And it is also fire adapted. So having prescribed burns doesn't, um, doesn't get rid of it, which Hmm. is a, a cure for some of our invasive species 
burning regularly. But um, it's actually extremely flammable. And it's one of the common names for it is petrol grass because a little spark can ignite it and it burns. When it does burn, it burns so hot that it sterilizes the soil. And so it destroys the seed bank of that, of native species. Yeah. So, yeah, that's definitely my um, number one invasive hit list. And I use yet another app that I, I love called, it's called I've Got One. And it um, is, you can use, just take a photo of cocoon grass or another invasive species and it has the location data and you enter like a tiny amount of information like how much area is covered and um, then you can upload that and that information is then available for governmental agencies to be alerted to new populations and to get a hold of populations before they become unmanageable because once they really take hold it can be extremely difficult to eradicate. That's the real scary thing about Kogan grass is once it takes hold. Um, I was talking to a um, invasive plant expert from the Nature Conservancy, and he said he had never seen a population of Kogan grass eradicated. Oh, wow. That's really definitely scary. Yeah. So he said it, he, it is possible, but it takes such regular returns of herbicide at the right time in order to um, finally, hopefully eradicate it. So reporting new populations is critically important. Yeah, I knew it was a problem in South Florida before we left, but I didn't realize it had spread that that far and wide. I had, was mostly focused on uh, like Brazilian pepper and melaleuca and that sort of thing, but I didn't realize it had gotten that bad. Yeah, you guys in South Florida have some already terrible invasive species <laughs> yeah. that have totally changed the landscape. But in North Florida, we have some, but not quite as bad as South Florida. And But in the last five years, the spread of Kogan grass, how rapidly it spreads, you know, it can grow extremely quickly. And it has just frightened me. I see it every day now. No matter where I go, I see it, and I use that app to report populations of it. Mm-hmm. And I'll re-report populations of it even because sometimes governmental agencies might treat it and then they um, think that it's gone and, you know, don't know that they yeah. need to go back to treat it again. Now, do you guys have uh, Chinese tallow? Is it bad in, in the panhandle yet? Yeah, it's definitely bad. Um, is that bad down south as well? Um, no, well, here in Houston, um, it's it's probably our, well, to me, it's one of the number one invasives. And I, I feel like the state and land management, nobody's doing anything for it. Um, and we have, you know, Texas has, you know, a Texas invasive site. And, you know, I'm sure I know they spray for, you know, water hyacinth and things like that. But I don't feel like there's any big push for eliminating uh, invasives like there is in Florida, at least. And tallow, I feel, is just taking over southeast southeast Houston, Beaumont, probably definitely into Louisiana as well. And I just didn't know how bad it had gotten over in Florida. It is bad. It's definitely the worst in suburban areas, um, urban areas in general, any kind of disturbed area. Um, mm-hmm. It there, And it's been here for so long, there are many 
very well established large trees that people are unwilling to take out because they're yeah. pretty and and they look kind of like oaks because they're so big and beautiful um, but they are producing boatloads of seed that may be in, eaten by mammals and birds and then further spread and yeah they're um, one of the best things about going out to these hard to reach natural areas that you know you might see on the Florida Trail is that you don't often see invasive plants in those areas. But just this um, Saturday or Sunday, I was out in the National Forest helping a friend do a rare plant survey, and I saw a large population of of um, uh, camphor out there. Mm. So. Yeah. It's hiding. <laughs> yeah. 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 So the big invasive tree species in North Florida are camphor trees and tallow trees. Okay. So if people are interested in learning a little bit about more about North Florida, do you have any resources, uh, you know, whether they're just hikers passing through or maybe living in North Florida, um, what would you recommend people to, to, to read or to visit uh, websites, things like that? Yeah. Um, yeah. So if you're just kind of curious and you like local history, I definitely recommend that book, The Other Florida by Gloria Jehoda. It has a really unique history of the panhandle. But if you're more interested in like the environments and the habitats and the plants and animal species that occur in them um, and where exactly they are and how they differ and change. There's um, an agency called the Florida Natural Areas Inventory, known as FNA, and they have put, put out a wonderful book called The Atlas of Florida's Natural Heritage. And that is, it's a beautiful book. It has a lot of cool pictures and <laughs> It also goes into depth about the geology of Florida, the geography, everything, Flor all of the endangered plants and animals. It's a really comprehensive book, and it's not that big. It's amazing to me how much they fit into this book. But I think that is, would be a really useful one for anyone who's really interested in, in knowing about the um, it regions. Okay. Now where, if they want to just follow what you're doing and learn by, by social media, where can they follow you? Um, I'm on Instagram. Um, I, I'm so Lilium is the genus for the, li, the lilies. Um, and my first name is Lily. And so, <laughs> um, my middle name is bird. Um, and so my, uh, handle on Instagram is Lilium bird. And then on, on Facebook, I'm Lily Bird, and it's B-Y-R-D. It's a family name. That is my middle name. Okay. Yeah. I've, I've loved your Instagram handle, and it, it just, it's a, it's a beautiful name. So you have a beautiful name. Yeah. I, I think it's a fitting name for my interests. <laughs> Definitely. And I was wondering, because you mentioned earlier, your family was just kind of into plants and, and, and all of that. I wondered if, if that was how you got your name. I, it's actually a family name. My great grandmother from Enigma, Georgia was named Lily. And okay. so I received that name from her. So okay. 
Well, thank you so much for uh, taking the time out to talk about North Florida a little bit. I hope it gives people a little bit of an insight into, you know, that area, St. Mark's, Apalachicola, when they're walking through, you know, maybe if they make a detour to Tallahassee for a day off uh, the trail. Um, I definitely want to uh, just have other voices in Florida to talk a little bit about it. And I think you were um, the right person to do that for this region. So I appreciate you, you doing that. Yeah, I think hiking the Florida Trail in the Panhandle is just a, such an excellent experience of going through many different ecoregions that are very distinct and diverse. And um, if you pay attention to what you're walking around, you could really um, have some exciting experiences. All right. Well, thank you. And hopefully you will be able to go and hike somewhere soon uh, outside of your local area uh, with this crazy pandemic. So, yeah, I hope so, too. That's it for my chat with Lily. You can find the show notes for the episode at orangeblaze.thegardenpathpodcast.com. And the podcast can be found on Instagram as Orangeblaze Podcast and on Facebook as Official Orangeblaze Podcast. Happy hiking and maybe plant some native plants during your non-hiking time. <laughs>